Welcome to Family Addiction Coaching, a podcast about families supporting a loved one with addiction. Each episode will provide insight into a real family's experience, what families find useful and not, what is available in the community, and what would help make their journey easier. Similar to what happens in our coaching service, we'll discuss how families have encouraged their loved one into recovery as well as their own family recovery. We'll also discuss harm reduction, an especially useful approach for those with no current interest in recovery. I'm your host, Patrick Doyle of Family Addiction Coaching. With a master's degree in social work, I'm licensed by the state of Massachusetts and comply with the strict code of ethics of the National Association of Social Workers. Once you became aware of things like adult children of alcoholics and Al-Anon, you didn't jump in head first. No, it like. was these were clubs that I didn't really want to be a part of. I was, yeah, I was, yeah. I was just fine. And how did you first become aware of family addiction coaching specifically? The literal reason is, yeah, my dad had told me that you were a saint. He said, oh, there's this guy, Patrick Doyle, guy's a saint. You should, you should call him and, and see if he can help. A saint. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you are. Thank you. <laughs> it's my great pleasure to welcome to our podcast series a remarkably strong and resilient young woman named Megan, who has used the coaching services of Family Addiction Coaching. Megan can share what it was like to use our coaching, as well as what her overall recovery journey experience has been like. She has been impacted by addiction, both during her childhood and now in adulthood. Having worked with her, sometimes alone, and other times with members of her extended family, it's been incredible to witness her ability to bring the large family together for critical discussions and decision-making, and to motivate others to take decisive and compassionate action. I want to warmly welcome you to the show, Megan, and to thank you for sharing such a personal story with our audience. Thank you, Patrick. It'd be a great way to start if, Megan, you could please share with us how you first became aware of the illness of addiction and the various ways it has impacted you at different times in your life and in different relationships. You grew up in a home with addiction as a child. Yes. So growing up, um, I had a parent with addiction and my parents were together in the same household until I was about 10 years old. And from there, my parents got divorced and the parent who was suffering from addiction did enter some treatment programs and was able to um, find sobriety and be a part of my life going forward. However, much of the addiction I didn't learn about until I was older, until after, you know, really after college when I asked, you know, why did, why did you get divorced? I had told myself growing up, well, my parents just didn't really get along, but they lived down the street from each other and everything's fine. But the reality was that this addiction, my parents' addiction was, you know, putting my family in danger. And so my parents separated and were divorced. And, and because I was younger, I didn't 
know the questions to ask necessarily. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Right. There was a lot of there was a lot of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. It was sort of normalized. I knew that my parent was sick, but I definitely didn't know to the extent that they were sick until I was was an adult and kind of returning home from college. And so that, that was a number of years. Pardon me. It sounds like that was a number of years that you were going through this experience and not understanding much about it yes. until later. Yes. So it was a number of years that I was experiencing kind of confusion, general sense of knowing that something was different. Something was something about my family was unique, but also knowing that there was something that I didn't know, but I didn't want to ask. And that. pardon me, how old were, would you say you were when addiction became problematic? Does it go back as long as you can remember? Yes. Yeah, I would say it goes back as long as I can remember, you know, having parents who tried really hard, tried their best to shelter my sibling and I from the effects of addiction, but mm -hmm. definitely, yeah, it was definitely prevalent from a young age. I think my parents stopped drinking alcohol, cold turkey, you know, went through and, but then after that, then um, became addicted to drugs, hiding that, you know, suffering, suffering, you know, keeping a job, keeping responsibilities, uh, covering childcare, um, you know, really watching, really watching and giving family responsibilities. So I know that there were times where we were definitely in danger and, um, and I can remember times when I was probably five or six, knowing something was off, but not having the parent who was uh, sober or not suffering from addiction present and knowing that, so that something was wrong. So in terms of the impact, it sounds like there were some obvious impacts, the separation of the family, the divorce. So yes. you had one your two parents were separated, lived on the same street, they were divorced. And so that was an obvious impact of addiction on the family. Yeah. So I'd say as even though you say it was an obvious impact, I don't think that that impact was obvious to me until adulthood. I right. had told myself, oh, they just were, you know, better, better not living together. That um, I knew that one of my parents was sick and I thought that they, you know, got better. And I was lucky to have both parents present celebrating holidays together. Um, but knowing that the kind of underlying this all was, well, if, if you're better now, why, why are you two still divorced? Um, and then really coming to understand, okay, that was like addiction had really taken a toll and, and the result was divorce and the separation of the family. And so I think that led as a child, a lot of, you know, feeling that something was off and getting anxious, but not wanting to talk about it. And so I brought mm -hmm. this into adulthood with me and that kind of spidey sense feeling like something's not right here. What's, what's off, but not feeling confident or empowered to actually ask the question, what's going on here? Can I understand this? This isn't making sense to me, but then just keeping those feelings inside. 
you describe going away to college as somehow creating some awareness in you. Yes, I think. Was it a, was it a matter of being out of the home environment and having some separation from that, some distance from that yourself and coming back into it? Perhaps that was part of what did it for you? Yeah, certainly. So it was definitely taking a step back and and having that time to observe how other families might have interacted. Not saying I think every family has know their own their own quirks and their own uh, uniqueness but it was definitely seeing other families who had been divorced and understanding why and seeing other friends and how they interacted with their parents and then kind of being able to understand my own situation kind of from an observer's perspective so coming home for holidays in between college I was you know out of the out of the household and then would come back and and observe, oh, this is interesting how this is happening. And I'm starting to notice more things, notice how the adults are communicating with each other now that I am an adult, um, noticing how the adults are planning for these holidays and, and where they are and the different, um, the different who's going where sort of things. And then, and then really after college coming home and, and having the time with with my parents to ask them these questions. And that was a matter of really being encouraged by a therapist who I was working with, who said, who was encouraging me to ask some of these outstanding questions that I had. And once I asked them, I got truth. And that's when I really came to be aware of the, the extent of addiction and, and the role that it played in my childhood. And you mentioned the don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. It sounds like you may have been aware of alcohol, maybe drugs, as being problematic. As a child, maybe you weren't even aware of that or aware that that was part of the problem. I think I had a simplistic understanding. I knew that my parent was quote unquote sick and went away because they were suffering from addiction. I think it was explained to me more focused on alcoholism. Yeah, it was explained to me more focused on alcoholism and treatment. The person, my parent went away and was in treatment and I, and I understood that because they weren't present at that time. Right. So I knew something was happening, Yeah, but I didn't know that it was something that was a continued recovery. It wasn't just gone for two months and then you're fixed. <laughs> sounds like a superficial understanding. There would be an explanation of where a parent is, why they're not around for a while, not much deeper than that. Right. And that, yes. And sorry, I'm upset thinking about it now. It's bound to bring up feelings. Growing up with that kind of experience, those feelings stay with us. They may change over time and over years, but the feelings are still going to be there, especially when one gets into a really healthy recovery and has access to feelings and emotions from the past and is able to experience them. For example, you're, you're not doing the don't talk, don't trust, don't feel now. Right. You don't operate in that mode. You are operating in the talking about it, trusting people and feeling your feelings. So congratulations, that's recovery. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. So I think that, yeah, growing up, I knew something was off, but I also didn't want to disrupt the peace. So when one of my parents was away in recovery, 
things were things were peaceful again, and I didn't want to be the one to ask questions and bring up uh, bring bring up chaos again. Right, the culture of the family and how addiction influences the family pretty much sets those rules. The addiction leaves us in a position where we are so reluctant to get yelled at, perhaps get punished. We'll do almost anything to not make things worse, to not get people upset. There's an expression of white knuckling. Oftentimes, we're white knuckling just to get through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When my sibling and I would go to my parents' house, the parent who was the parent who had the addiction, we would behave ourselves. We would look at each other sometimes a little bit nervously, but we would listen to we would listen to our parent, we would follow the rules. And then we would go home to the house that we were living in with a parent who was not suffering from addiction, and we would fight with each other. And it seems totally unfair that, you know, I mean, siblings fight with each other. That's what they do. And, but it was looking back, it was, we felt safe in that house um, and more safe, safe enough to argue with each other. But when we were, you know, the unwritten rule, when we were with the parent who was with the addiction, we, we knew we didn't want to upset them. We didn't want to rock the boat. Like you said, we didn't want to disturb anything. So we, we were able to contain ourselves as, you yeah. know, as a six-year-old and a 10-year-old, that's hard to do. Your behavior changed depending on which household you were in at that given time, you and your sibling. Yes. And, and that's something that, it, yeah, thinking back about it, I, I knew, but I just didn't have the words for it. There wasn't a parent there explaining it, acknowledging it, or validating your experience. That wasn't done. Correct. I think addiction takes a toll on everyone, and the parent who was not suffering from addiction was was exhausted and um, kind of unfair thinking back that, that that parent was the one who got the arguing siblings. Um, yeah. But they got a lot of good times. They both had a lot of good times with us, and I think over time you know, once we were teenagers, that the parent with the addiction was further into recovery. We, the behavior was less dramatically different in both houses, more similar. Each household got healthier over time. Yes, it did. Also, your parents were going through perhaps something similar where they didn't know what to say, how to comfort you around it. There might have been some amount of that holding back that they didn't want to upset you. So they did the best that they could to be the best parent that they could with what they knew. Yeah, absolutely. I think that both parents were embarrassed for different reasons, but both of them were embarrassed. We, you know, felt embarrassed, my sibling and I, and I you know, speaking from my own experience, I know I felt embarrassment about bringing it up. And yeah, so it was comfortable for everyone to kind of go through their own thing at their own time, but not a lot of really openness um, or, you know, discussion ongoing. It sounds like you were feeling the effects of stigma, the yes. stigma of growing up in an alcoholic family. How do you look at yourself? 
How do you look at your parents? What do you say to your friends or to the neighbors? What you're describing is a stigma that society puts on addiction. Society's views towards addiction are not along the lines of a medical illness that could happen to literally anybody, but more along the lines of a moral failure or a weakness, something that needs to be met with punishment, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. Yeah. And that's what you were going through. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why I, you know, I told other people around me, you know, friends in elementary school and middle school, high school, oh, my parents just don't get along. And then I started to believe it, thinking that that was the reason. And and then as an adult, I needed to learn that this was a disease like cancer or diabetes so that I could understand the disease and then then make sense of my childhood. But I, I needed to learn the experience that other families had so that I could realize that my experience was similar to that. Megan, you described being in therapy in college. What gave you the sense that therapy might be a good thing for you to enter into? Sure. So I had growing up, I had, you know, an independent education plan. I think that is IEP. And I had attention deficit disorder and I I did, wasn't actually diagnosed with that until I was in college. And so it was really, I had entered counseling or therapy to help with my my learning disability and, and figure out how I could manage that and still perform. And I was worried about, about being able to perform out in, in the workplace after I graduated from college. And so that's what got me into therapy in the first place. And then after working through some of the things that were more you know, traditional learning disabilities, I was, you know, really encouraged to think about, okay, what else is going on here? And that's where the family, uh, family addiction discussions really started coming up more and more. You described how you went back to your parents and started asking questions yeah, so I was def I was definitely nervous going back to my parents to ask them these questions. I felt like I knew the answers, but I I was still a little nervous about rocking the boat. But I knew that I was an adult now. I could ask these questions, and and I was curious. So you know, I asked both parents their perspective, and there were definitely emotional discussions. You know, feeling one parent. Uh, you know, having more shame about it and and trying to show and prove how far into recovery and that recovery is really something that that parent did for me and my sibling. But then on the other side, the other parent feeling like or or sharing, you thought it was just because we didn't get along. No, <laughs> there were there was. Uh, alcohol addiction, there was substance abuse, there was lying, there was, you know, all sorts of, you know, financial, working, safety, all sorts of all these other, you know, problems that arise as a result of addiction that led to separation. And even, you know, my parents both did a good job respecting each other and keeping it very, um, they did a good job respecting each other and keeping it very controlled in front of my sibling and I, not a lot of arguments, not a lot of 
passive aggressive behavior really they really were two supportive loving parents in front of us uh-huh. and yeah. it, so it was hard to understand that oh they they did have their own adult interactions when we weren't around and there was a lot of other things happening that my sibling and I weren't weren't a part of or didn't see having these conversations with your parents that was against the culture of addiction to be open and to ask questions it might have been a little rocky difficult for the family when you did start asking questions yeah i think it was difficult from the family for the family because it it did bring up a lot of old old emotions but it also brought up a lot of emotions that needed to be let out and um, it was definitely, you know, an opportunity for growth. It was a lot to process. And I'm lucky that they both encouraged me to process what they, what our discussion was, you know, for that day. But they welcomed me to come back with questions. And I did. And so there were moments driving, I'd be driving to work and be like, I wonder this memory that I have of the the coffee machine exploding. I wonder what that was all about. <laughs> and, oh. you know, kind of being able to ask about these memories. And it's like, oh, yeah, that was the day that one parent was supposed to get up and bring you to school and, you know, do X, Y, Z. And that didn't happen. And and now you remember the the mess and the, you know, the, the results of that not happening and and what you it was clearly something that stuck in my memory but I didn't remember why why is this mundane you know just kitchen mess a memory that's so vivid in in my mind what what actually happened I say what was going on it sounds like you got a very positive response when you did start asking those questions yeah it, it was very positive response and very encouraging and they also opened up and shared more about beyond just my parents, what were their parents like and their parents like. And and it really opened up my eyes to addiction as a family disease. I grew up thinking that I was the one cousin in this group that had a parent that was suffering from addiction. And I didn't really talk to my cousins about it on either of my parents' side. And that was, you know, that was something that once I was adult, I realized that this, you know, it is a, it is a family disease and seeing it in other generations and understanding my parents' experience helped me understand, helped me understand why they might've behaved a certain way, what their upbringing was like and how, you know, they wanted mine to be different, and in a lot of ways it was, but in some ways it was similar. It's a common misunderstanding that when people stop using the substance, that things return to normal, including healthy communications within the family, feeling of comfort, feeling of safety. What needs to happen is that for the person with the addictive illness, they need a lot of growth and learn how to talk, to trust, to feel, and to do that with their family members and loved ones. 
So it's not as simple as not drinking or not drugging, yet we don't do a good job of explaining that to people, even when they're in treatment. Mm. If they're in a residential treatment program, I don't think we do a good job of explaining that simply the absence of problematic substance use does not make everything better. Right. The brain doesn't heal overnight. Right. And there's a natural tendency as our brains clear, as our brains heal, we remember more, we become more aware. It's oftentimes a very humbling experience for a person. The last thing they want to do is to cause disruption or cause discomfort or difficulties for their loved ones. We don't necessarily do a good job of educating people about the additional work of recovery that needs to continue beyond that and needs to become a lifelong practice. Yeah, I think in after, you know, I've learned kind of some of the some of the things that I talked to my parent who was in recovery about was, you know, when you were living in that apartment right after, you know, I didn't like coming to your house because you didn't have food and I was uncomfortable and I felt like something was still wrong, but I didn't want to ask. And so then, or, or the only food you had was pancakes always, even though the apartment didn't have a stove. So it was always on this like electric griddle. And, and so, you know, once that, once that parent told me, well, pancakes was my job every day was just to stay sober was you know make different kind of pancakes different shaped pancakes different you know toppings in pancakes different pancake batter different pancake temperature different you know I remember the obsession with pancakes and I remember being like can't we have like pizza for dinner but it was pancakes 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 and that was a coping mechanism that now that I understand more about the effects of addiction on the brain, I understand how powerful those pancakes were. And now I love to have pancakes for dinner with my parent. And it's kind of a fun, fun way to recognize their sobriety and, and how far they've come in their recovery. So pancakes was a tool that was yes, critical. That was, that was to the tool, that and I'm not sure if recovery. my parent got that tool by just coming up with it on their own, or whether that was a tool that they received in a support group or from a recovery program. But that it was something I clearly remember, and and was frustrated by as a kid because I didn't understand it. But as an adult, I really appreciate that maybe it was pancakes that kept the recovery going. There's a sense of you don't want to, you're not sure how to react with that person. You're not sure what to, how to be supportive or what is helpful versus not helpful. When to speak up and say your opinion and when to keep your opinion to yourself. And I think that's the thing that you know, even going through with the addiction in my own household and working through that as a child and then into adulthood has kind of teed up the the next kind of chapter of how addiction is in my life, which is that I married into a family with active addiction and kind of found myself being affected by my husband's relatives and, and being forced to examine addiction at another at another level. 
being a child, do you know if there was any outreach or support offered to the family while that person was in the treatment program? I know that the other parent who was not in treatment for addiction did receive some you know, updates and some suggestions from the treatment program on how to support um, how to support the the person coming out of the addiction facility, but I I don't think it was really from a family counseling perspective. I think it was really more from a logistical perspective, uh-huh. and um, from there, I think you know I think my school was made aware of the situation, so I you know, might have had a few other teachers kind of looking out for me, but nothing, nothing formal. In my mind, that's a real opportunity loss. A parent in residential treatment and there's not much, if any, outreach to the spouse, definitely nothing for the children. It's an opportunity lost. And it's striking to me the significant lack of support offered to families and children We know that involving the family improves the outcome, and it also helps the family. We don't see it done. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely definitely a disservice and and an opportunity to provide healing for not just the, the person who has the addiction, but for the family members who've been affected by the addiction. And, and it definitely doesn't change overnight. And so having, you know, tools to help, and tools to understand so that you can understand, okay, this is, this is a normal emotional response. This is something that I'm just going to say okay to today. And once that person has more recovery under them, we can talk about that more, but yeah, definitely even an opportunity, you know, within the schools to have, you know, other students who might be going through something similar. Um, I was lucky that my, you know, one of my best friends growing up, her parent was a psychologist at the school, not the school that we went to, but within the same school system. And so that my friend's parent provided a lot of support and guidance to one of my parents and was very supportive and non-judgmental towards any questions that I had for them. But I, again, I really wasn't scratching the surface in terms of the questions that I had, but they, they knew, and I knew that they knew what was going on. And that was enough to feel supported. Alan on Family Group is a huge support to millions of people and is specifically designed to support families and to help them understand about illness and health and recovery. There's also the group called Alateen for teenagers. Did you ever attend any of them? Yeah, so I, again, I did a good job kind of stuffing a lot of these, the, my questions away until after I was in college. I started out exploring and there were some online meetings for the organization Adult Children of Alcoholics. And so I had kind of attended some meetings online and then, you know, ordered some of the books and I kind of dabbled in it, but I wasn't really ready to dive in and examine a lot of the subjects that were just feeling really tough. I read the book Codependent No More and was yeah. kind of astonished at how some of the stories in that book felt like they could have been stories that I wrote. I realized that I wasn't alone and 
was was kind of interested in hearing more from people with similar experiences. So that is what got me to attend my first Al-Anon family group meeting. And from there, I found, you know, a really supportive group of people who, for a while, I just sat there and listened and learned from them and absorbed. It really was a sponge. And then over time, uh-huh. you know, did did leverage that group more and more to help with my own recovery. Once you became aware of things like adult children of alcoholics and Al-Anon, you didn't jump in head first. No, it like. was these were clubs that I didn't really want to be a part of. I was, yeah. I was, yeah. I was just fine. You know, okay, parent is in recovery. We're good. We can move on. Um, and yeah. and so really, I, I was aware of them. I had dabbled in them, but I wasn't really serious about it until I started to be more aware of addiction in my husband's family and how the very active addiction in in his family relatives was starting to affect me. I had, you know, been aware of these programs, but I sort of thought, okay, well, no one's actively using or my parent isn't actively using isn't actively suffering from this addiction anymore. So I'm not sure how much I really need this. But then, you know, I'm happy that I was aware of the programs and and really was driven to to explore them more once I was in my mid-20s. It took a while for you to feel comfortable enough to start attending Al-Anon. And it sounds... I like the question. I think I have a good answer. Or I like where oh, you're you going. Do. Yeah. What's the question? <laughs> I, I guess the question is, what did you need yeah. to learn and what kind of support was useful for you? Right. When I think about it, what got me to those meetings at first was 10 or 15 years. I, I would have benefited probably. What got me there was, and I do believe that everything kind of happens for a reason, but what got me there was that I was seeing this the disease of addiction beginning to affect my life again. And I, I didn't want that to happen. So it was really a proactive, like, okay, I'm not going to let this bring me down. I'm doing all this work and, and starting to make sense of my childhood. And like, I don't want to let this consume my life again. And so at first it was, I was frustrated that I didn't know some of these things growing up. And so what helped me was learning more and more how this was common. But then when I think about how do we make sure that this this isn't common, it's thinking about how you talk to other people about it and how you talk to your family, your extended family about it, even though the person whose you know, society is putting the stigma on the person who suffers from the addiction, talking to other family members about it and bringing the family together to know that we believe this is an addiction and addictions and a family disease. And so how does the family recover? I think it's having the family talk about it, talk about their feelings. And even I mentioned before that I hadn't discussed a lot of this with many of my cousins. Now I'm, I'm able to talk about this with more of my cousins and able to talk about it with more of my relatives in a way that they're, you know, breaking down that don't trust, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel so that's been what's been most helpful for for me in my family's recovery. And how long did it take you to recognize that there was addiction in your relationship? It was obvious 
the signs were there in the beginning, but I was, I was observant and I didn't ask questions. I didn't ask the hard questions at the beginning. I did the don't trust, don't talk, don't feel for a little while. And then as the relationship got more serious, I started to ask more questions. And, you know, within the first year or two, it was, it was apparent. Yeah, I think it started to come up once we were dating more seriously. It would come up around holidays because holidays, you know, you start to figure out, okay, who who are we going to see on this holiday and who do we actually want to see on this holiday and and how, what are the different environments and what are the environments, you know, I feel safer and more emotionally supportive in, in this environment versus, you know, when we visit these people, I feel like I'm a kid again and I can't say what's on my mind because I'm worried about rocking the boat or upsetting an addict. And so it came up really at, at the earlier in our relationship around holidays, planning for various holidays that are traditionally spent with family. And it took my partner and I time to figure out how do we handle this? Do we divide and conquer? What what spiritually do you need versus what do I need? And sometimes it was, you know, separating and not being with each other on the holidays. And other times it was saying, you know, I won't be present at this holiday if there's going to be alcohol and starting to form some of those boundaries with family members, which is hard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Were you maybe a catalyst to that family or to your partner at least? discussing it more openly or acknowledging it? I think so. And it's hard to just, you know, rip the roof off the house and let the light shine in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It takes time to kind of peel back layers and, and everybody's on their different, their own path to recovery. So a lot of times where I wanted to make a call for everyone, but that's part of being in a family that you have to figure out what's best for what was best for us as a, as a couple and what was best for us each individually. And I think once we, once we were married, it was a little bit easier to make some of those decisions. I don't know what it is about being married, but families, families respect mm -hmm. your decision as a couple a bit more. <laughs> they don't yeah. push back on it as much. So right. there were times where when we were dating that we would, you know, set a boundary or, uh, make a plan that other people would push back on. And once we were married, that boundary was a little bit more firm. And oh. um, Pardon me, Megan. It sounds like your husband's family was not initially receptive to setting limits, no alcohol, and basically addressing that there's a problem here that you needed to be protective of yourself. Yeah, that's definitely accurate. And I think there was also a you know, addiction is a family disease. And so a lot of people were sick themselves in terms of the different levels of denial, different, different ideas about how, you know, how they were, what their role was in, in this uh, family unit where, you know, were they an enabler or were they the ones, you know, calling it out and, you know, what, what was their boundary that they had set in their mind versus other boundaries from other family members. And so none of that was out in the open or being talked about. And so there were, you know, a few various holidays, our wedding, 
you know, times that I felt really strongly about setting firm boundaries that brought awareness in it was it forced people and the family relatives to really look at us and brought awareness amongst the group in ways that hadn't been talked about in the group before. That must have been hard for you to do. There were a lot of tears and a lot of yeah. yeah, it was it was a lot of patience, I would say also. And that's where the having the Al Anon program was extremely helpful because sometimes you have a lot on your mind and a lot to say and nobody wants to hear it. And at Al Anon they want to hear it. And so having that group that's supportive and really focused on you and not focused on solving solving what you think the problem is or solving solving the addiction, they're really focused on how can you live your life the way that you want to, um, whether or not the person is still drinking or not. Right. So Al-Anon is really about the family member gaining health and recovery. It's not about getting person sober necessarily. No, not at all. And I think, yeah, going, going there, does it, you're, you know, going to Al-Anon, I, the meetings that I've been to, you know, in my experience, I've never been focused on even brainstorming how to get the addict uh-huh. recovery or help. It's really how can, what is, what is my role and how is this affecting me emotionally? And then how do I want to set boundaries for myself? Um, so really just, yeah, it's, it's all about it was all about me and, and, you know, finding the courage to bring up and the courage to have some of those tough discussions and have the courage to set some of those boundaries, but then also having the ability to not always be controlling or not always be the one voicing my opinion and being able to, to set some things over to the universe to handle it sounds like you're describing your recovery in general. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to speak your mind, the ability to make choices. What are you going to take on versus, as you just said, what are you going to just let it be up to the universe? What happens with that particular concern? Yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it. it yeah. How if I can't change the circumstances around me, it takes a long time to accept that, but still working on it. But it is, that's, you know, that's part of it. And so if once I accept I can't change certain things, it's okay. What things can I change? What is within, you know, my control? And, and then what feels right? You know, spiritually, what are the things that would make me feel like, okay, I'm doing the best I can. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm able to do. This is what I mentally can handle. And then from there, you know, having the courage to actually do that action, which is often uncomfortable and brings, you know, brings up feelings of, okay, I don't want to make that person sad. If I bring up this topic, they might get sad, but that doesn't mean that I made them sad. It means that this topic is sad. Right. It fascinates me still, even with all we know about addiction, in general, we as a society don't recognize that there is an impact on children and on spouses and on parents and on friends even. Yeah. 
part of your recovery was even recognizing that you had anything to to recover from. Absolutely. It was, like I said, yeah, it was the the club that I didn't want to be a part of. It was. That's a great line. Am I? I? This is a club that I don't want to be a part of. I love, I love that line. It nails it. Yeah. 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 It nails it. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, I am part of this club. I hear the ambivalence within the individual. Yeah, there's a club. I don't want to belong to it. But even just to pose one's self that question shows some awareness that maybe I belong there. Yeah, so I'd say for anyone who's asking themselves, am I a member of this club too? (laughs) Try it. See, you know, try a meeting, try an online meeting, try reading a book, try a you know, reading a blog, try a, whatever the different, you know, kind of resources are for in the community for anyone who's affected by another person's addiction. There's, yeah. there's other people out there who are going through the same thing. And so you might find that, yeah, that you're have more similarities. Support. Yeah. And then, you yeah. know, I was really the relative or my in-law relative that, um, that I was, you know, having trouble with making sense of was the real reason that I started to go to, to the Al-Anon family group meetings. But it was once I was there starting to really help with a lot more healing of, of the childhood or of my, of the addiction really? that I experienced in childhood. Yeah. So in a way it was a blessing. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Think or you so. made it a blessing. Think, uh, yeah. You I think everything for a reason and I think sometimes I think okay what if I had learned about all of this at a younger age and what if I had been to the Alateen meetings or something you know what would I have been able to make sense of it or would I have been able to you know separate myself from it and really get recovery and you know I don't know but I I think everything happens for a reason and I think I I learned what I needed to learn at the time that it was right in my life and the time that I could spend time really thinking about it more and, and growing from it. And that I think the time that I learned about it was the time that allowed me to, to get the most out of my experience. Right. As I described as the start of this conversation, you have used family addiction coaching services in addressing addiction, active addiction in your husband's family. What steps did you take to try to address the active addiction with your in-law family? What steps did you take to try to address that? And and how did that work for you? Yeah, so I think part of my recovery has given me almost just less tolerance for, for addiction, for watching it affect families and watching it affect my own family in particular, I get defensive about. And so when I see, you know, a family member's addiction starting to, to have effects and really cause, you know, cause pain for other family members, I get defensive and I, and I, and I want to do something about it. And so for me, a lot of the time it's talking about it. And sometimes people don't want to talk about it. And sometimes, you know, you just 
then you're kind of left to, okay, what else could I do? And so it was a lot of searching for, I'd encourage other family members to try out an Al-Anon meeting or encourage other family members to read Codependent No More or, you know, various things that had helped me, just kind of hoping it might help them too, listening to them a lot and, and, but then feeling really stuck, like, okay, this, what can I do to be supportive? Because this, the person who is suffering from the addiction or has the, you know, alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder, they're, they have a disease and this disease is, it's, it's awful. And so what can I do not to shame them or provide or to, you know, re-stigmatize or reinforce that stigma? What can I do to be loving and helpful, but also what's my boundary of enabling? And so I think it was a lot of discussions and starting to bring it up with more family members and then ultimately realizing that, you know, there isn't, there isn't, it's hard to bring a family together and it's, it's, you can very easily be the one who's stirring up chaos and how do you find a way to be productive and supportive, but also not find yourself in the middle of a family crisis. Um, and so that's really what tried the, tried the reading, tried the meetings, tried the talking, and then ultimately needed, needed more guidance. And that's what led to kind of exploring the family coaching. Had you tried to speak to that person directly? If you did, how did that go? Yeah. So as, as an in-law, I, I was often reliant on, um, the direct family members to, to say, Hey, I, I am feeling this. I want to say something. And, and then a lot of the time the reaction was, Oh, I don't know. Let me try saying that. And let me see what, you know, they say to me. And so I didn't really, there were only so many opportunities that I kind of saw myself having. And, and when we did get married, it was, is this person invited how, okay, if they are, what are the boundaries while they're there? And then what happens if they show up and they break those boundaries? And so the boundary was that there'll be no driving and we, we would like for you, to, for you to be sober, which is sometimes an unrealistic request, and we knew that. And so that was, it was sad, but it was what it was. And It wasn't even clear that you would invite that individual to the marriage, to the wedding. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it was, um, at first, I think at first it was kind of like, is this an opportunity, you know, like long, you know, a year before the wedding or nine months before the wedding, it was, can we use this as an opportunity to, to create an ultimatum and force some leverage? Like we want you to be sober at our wedding and can we use that as kind of a negotiating chip? And it was like, not a, an effective negotiation ship and because ultimately we wanted them to be present at our wedding whether they were mm-hmm. sober or not um, because that was the decision that felt spiritually right for us we w- didn't want this person to feel like we had exiled them but at the same time even if they were physically there they weren't spiritually or 
emotionally there and it felt a little bit fake. Right. But our, that and, was the and, decision that we came to was to invite the person and then try and set boundaries from there. So in terms of having a direct discussion with this individual, you know, sitting down for coffee saying, I'm really concerned. Can I help you with anything? It mm -hmm. didn't get to that point. No, because the... It didn't the, feel comfortable. It didn't, or, well, it, my... My husband did have those discussions, but at that point there was so much isolation and denial that it was hard to really say with certainty, we know that you're, um, we know that you're suffering and we want to help you because the family member had isolated and, and we hadn't actually been to that person's house in a couple of years. We were suspected things, but it wasn't out in the open. And so... It was it was hard because you were kind of tiptoeing into a territory where you didn't have a lot of certainty. It did feel uncomfortable to speculate yes. or to go on the signs that you did see. And it sounds like that person's health was deteriorating, at least in the sense that they were isolating and distancing yes. themselves from you. Yeah. And at that point, I think they had been distancing themselves for you know probably 15 years so that's where I kind of realized, okay, this is, you know, I didn't, I didn't cause it. I can't control it. I can't cure it. What can I do? Um, right. And, and that's where it felt, you know, it felt, we felt stuck and that's, we got, you know, got married and kind of said, all right, well, this is, it'll be whatever it will be. But then after, um, after we were married and, you know, probably about a year later, the family member's health really deteriorated. And, and that's when we seriously sought out family coaching. And I remember the first time that we spoke, you got married about a year ago, correct? Yes. Well, yeah, a year and a half ago. And I remember you and I spoke on the phone about a year. I don't think you were married yet, or maybe you were newly married. But I remember that we had a discussion on the phone and you were talking about your in-laws family. You were considering coaching at that point. I think we might've had a couple of conversations. You did not pursue it for maybe another year later. What was your thinking? Yeah. So I think our first call was, was before the wedding, before we were married and we were kind of, yeah, we were talking about boundaries and different strategies to, to help get this person ultimately into a recovery program. Yeah. We were planning a wedding. We were dealing with other family issues, a sick relative, and it was, how do we balance all of this? And when you have someone who's addicted and is really part of the disease is being, you know, extremely, extremely good at, you know, manipulating others and being deceitful. It was hard to know what was true and what was not. And I didn't really have the energy at that point in time to go start being face to face and not letting that family member isolate. And so it was taking a step back and saying, okay, they say that they're cutting back that's probably unlikely, but they say that they're cutting back on their use of alcohol and they say that they're trying. And so right now we've talked about it and 
I'm going to leave it at that for now. And then, you know, a year passed, we got, we were, my husband and I were married at that point. And, and then the family member, you know, had a, a serious medical condition as a, likely as a result of, you know, not taking care of their body or, and because of their alcohol use disorder. And, and that's when we were kind of forced as a family to, to address this again. And that's when you called back the second time. Yeah. So at that point it was okay. We're this person that's in the hospital and, you know, because they've been in the hospital and had this serious um, health event happen, you know, what can we do to not let this person go back to the same living situation, having the kind of coaching to help navigate the healthcare system, which can be really difficult, especially when there's so many different parties, there's doctors, there's social workers, there's case managers, there's family members, there's the the patient themselves, there's all these different parties to be coordinated. And how do we figure out and which ones do we leverage to actually set this person up and get them to buy into a treatment program? The issue was not seen as primarily addiction. It was seen as another, what might be called a more traditional physical illness. It seemed that that had a big impact on how much attention anybody paid to the addictive illness. Yes, that had a big impact on the attention, but still not enough of it. I would say, you know, it was surprising being in the hospital, how quickly the person was treated for that health if you, you know, directly think of it, you know, you go into the hospital, you have a heart attack, you have a stroke, you have a whatever, they kind of treat you for that. But what's the thing that caused that? And so, you know, the doctors would quickly fit to address the, the health, the health concern that was immediately pressing. But it took a lot of family members reiterating to every nurse, every doctor, this is the situation that the patient is in. Um, our family member has a history of alcohol use disorder. We really don't think it's a good idea for them to be discharged, you know, just back into the household that that they were previously, you know, drinking in and and with relatives or with other family members who are not supportive of the recovery. So it was. It sounds it was, like the medical providers were not real receptive to that kind of input. No. No, they, they unfortunately were. There were a few along the way, case managers who, who were helpful and some who were a little bit more interested and aware than others. This medical issue resulted in, you know, different hospital visits across Massachusetts. So it wasn't just one hospital. A few of them had programs that were for patients who were at risk of overdosing, you know, opiates or, or other drugs. But when it came to alcohol use, they kind of were like, oh, all right, well, we'll get them out of this unit for this immediate health problem and then they'll take it from there. But no one really taking ownership for addressing, addressing that. And it's unfortunate, but we still do see that if there has been a serious cardiovascular, potentially life-threatening incident, that's where the attention goes. Even if an addiction was a, a factor in bringing about that cardiovascular incident, it gets short shrift if paid attention to at all. Mm-hmm. We're still seeing that. The best thing we got was just getting the doctor to say, you know, if you smoke cigarettes again this will happen. If you continue to drink like this, you are putting yourself in jeopardy. So 
it was hard to get the doctors to really emphasize that to the patient in a way that would sink in. And it was very easy, easy for the patient and relative to say, I can't believe you're trying to get me into addiction right now. Can't you see I just had this traumatic medical event and, and very easy to, to that worked. distract. Yeah. 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 That, that worked. Yeah. The, um, so the medical providers, the most they gave was education and a stern warning that if you drink again, if you smoke again, you are increasing your risk to have a, a bad outcome, a, a bad consequence. And I wouldn't call that treatment at all. That's mm. a, a warning, a cautioning. And to not have a strong recommendation for addiction treatment seems they weren't considering it a medical illness that needed treatment. They were considering it a free choice that a person was going to make. Am I going to smoke or not? Am I going to drink or not? Yeah. And that's where it caused, you know, it causes the family to decide how do we handle this? How do we get this? Per we all agree that the person, if they want to get better, they need treatment and they aren't capable of making free choices like, will I drink again? Will I smoke again? It's just a matter of when, you know, without, right. without the appropriate treatment. And so that's when it really became, you know, a burden to the burden to the family. And how did you first become aware of family addiction coaching specifically? The literal reason is, yeah, my dad had told me that you were a saint. He said, oh, there's this guy, Patrick Doyle, guy's a saint. You should, you should call him and, and see if he can help. A saint. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you are. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but it, it, yeah, it was another family member referring, you know, based on their experience. And so that's why I'm happy that you're doing this podcast so that I can share my experience with others who might be looking for help. I want people to know that I'm a saint. <laughs> you are. So I'm happy to tell them. <laughs> well, thank you. Seemed like a reasonable idea. You explored it. The, the medical incident happened. It impacted you in some way where you got the thought, we got to do something and I'm not sure either what to do or I'm not sure how to get this extended family all on board with this idea. Can you describe that? What, what, what was going on? Yeah. So again, it kind of goes back to like, I don't, I know when I see something that's wrong and I want to do something about it. And, and when I say wrong, I mean, I know when I see someone suffering from addiction and I know it's not fair, the stigma that society gives them or gives to the family. And so I wanted to do something to help my new family, you know, my in-law relatives. And, and, but I was feeling very stuck not feeling supported by the medical system and not necessarily feeling like I, um, I could tell, you know, who am I to tell other people what they should or shouldn't be doing? You know, I felt like I needed, I felt like I needed a referee. We needed someone to, who could kind of help facilitate some of these really hard discussions um, in, in a tricky family dynamic. And, and that's where, you know, our experience was that by bringing the family together on a phone call to discuss, you know, discuss the situation just for what it is, not for all the things that might have led to this in the past, but just let's get the facts out on the table. Let's get our feelings out on the table and then let's work with, 
with Patrick and work with family coaching sessions to, to figure out where the areas that we agree that, that, you know, we agree on an action plan and, and then kind of who has, who has the bandwidth, who has the emotional availability, who has the physical ability and who has the desire to help in some way. And then how can we, you know, as a family unit, create a plan and, and really be supportive of each other and hopefully helping the, the person with the relative with substance use disorder to, to recover. And, you know, in addition to kind of the family coaching sessions that were a little bit more proactive in terms of, you know, practicing saying certain things and practicing boundary setting and, some a little bit of you know playing out different scenarios if they say this what can our response be if they do this action what can our response as a family be but then also being there for the moment that that person the relative makes some crazy feeling feels like crazy but when they make some decision that all of a sudden has an impact and all of a sudden might be Putting they them might at be risk. putting, yeah, they might be putting themselves in harm. How do we react without just throwing out all the family coaching work that we've been doing and, right. and taking? What is the next step? Megan, it sounds like you feel a strong sense of responsibility to help a person who is sick and suffering, and it sounds like the option of not taking some sort of strong action was then not an option for you. You're the kind of person that is not going to stand by and watch someone with an illness self-destruct and eventually die without doing everything you can possibly do to try to, to help save their life. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think especially when it comes to trying something. You know, there's definitely families get burnt out trying to help other family members. So I definitely have been more aware of how can I make sure that I'm also preserving my, my own sanity and keeping myself healthy. But if, when I see, you know, a family member suffering and I see addiction, you know, really causing extreme risk, then I feel like, okay, this is, I need, I want to do something. I will feel better about myself and hopefully the person will be on the path to recovery, I can't control them, but I can do something. What can I control? I can say something. I can write a letter. I can suggest family coaching. I can go to a meeting. What are the things that I can do to to not just keep it not not talked about, not trusted, or not felt? You know, what are the things that I can do to be exactly. honest and and keep it in the open in a non judgmental and hopefully productive way. You have a lot of compassion and you have a lot of strength. That's what this family needed. And that's what you provided. Being an outsider was a benefit to you. You had not been co-opted or sucked into the denial and the dysfunctional patterns of interaction and communication within that family because you did not grow up in that family. So you had more objectivity what we saw was that you could point things out in a very assertive and loving and compassionate way to the extended family members in a way that they couldn't do it for themselves. 
Right. I wasn't, you know, a lot of them were, you know, kind of frogs slowly boiling in water, right? And I was the frog who jumped into the water and jumped right back out <laughs> and was like, yeah. this, no, this isn't right. You know, this is, this is sad. This is awful. This is terrible. This doesn't have to be this way. We can, we can voice our concern. We can provide other options. We can encourage treatment. And yes. You were yes, able to see it very that. clearly as a medical condition as somebody who was sick and suffering with a medical illness who was not appearing to be open to treatment and you were able to help the family identify that and it took some work and it took the coaching to help you achieve that. What was the coaching like? How did you use it? Were these scheduled sessions? Were they a crisis call in the middle of the day or any time where you felt something needed to be done quickly? As I recall, it was a combination of both. We had initially set up at least two or three extended family meetings where you had decided that something needed to be done. There needed to be some sort of intervention of some type. I recall that there were a few sessions with extended family pulled together pretty quickly. One thing that amazed me was that how you got so many people to attend. We might have had as many as nine or ten, most of <laughs> whom were living in different parts of the country. On a conference call, I know as the coach facilitating this discussion, my role was to achieve a consensus of people's concerns and develop some action items that people could agree to mm -hmm. and then help identify the different roles that individuals were able to and were willing to play. I remember being impressed and amazed at how quickly you got all of these people together for these basically family meetings on a conference call, <laughs> which is one of the beauties of family coaching mm -hmm. is that you can pull together family meetings really quickly. If someone can get to a phone, you can have a family meeting with people in all different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I was really impressed. Yeah, you got these people together and there was some who didn't say much. There are other people who were a little bit more vocal. There were some people who were asking fairly basic questions. Some people were asking questions like, gosh, is this really as big a deal as you guys think it is? Which was actually very useful because it put it out on the table. Mm -hmm. It allowed the family to respond to it by saying, yes, if something isn't done, this person is putting themselves in harm's way. And the plan is to put themselves out in the community, living basically alone, where Lord knows what could happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in terms of the different types of coaching, there are a lot of different times where we, my husband and I would look at each other and just like, oh, what do we do now? Um, and so it was kind of, okay, what do we do now? We get on a family coaching call and we have this group text message and let's figure out what times people are available. And, and here are the people who are most involved in the situation right now who definitely need to be on the call. And then here are the people who um, we'd love for them to listen in and join the call and participate but maybe they're across the country, maybe they're, you know, at work and, and it was good for them to be able to listen, even though they weren't necessarily playing an active role. But then they, you know, when they were speaking to the person suffering from active addiction, they were able to follow a similar message. And when we started to have a similar message and, and as a family have stronger, we were more aligned. It, it definitely helped to eliminate some of that, um, 
sneaking around and what the person with the addiction was able to achieve by manipulating others. That was definitely helpful to have the telephone calls, just creating awareness about the situation in an unbiased way, just putting the facts out on the table. Okay, this person you know, has been released or, or checked themselves out of the uh, physical rehabilitation uh, location that we all thought they were going to be at for another three weeks or so. So now that we're all aware of that, we're accepting the risk. What is the what is the action that we're comfortable taking? And and sometimes it's hard because you're like, oh, you want to be able to offer up. Okay. We don't want you to stay at your house, but you could stay at this person's house. But you don't want to offer up that person's house if that person's not actually willing to let them in their house. And so the family coaching helped us work out a lot of the plans so that we could present a very solid plan to to the patient without patient. them saying, they won't let me there or I doubt that'll work because we as a family had already discussed it. Um, and so that yeah. was that was really extremely helpful to know that the family members who were taking action also had the support of the rest of the family and weren't going to be told what you said that like I don't agree with that. Um, it was able to be worked out on those phone calls ahead of time. No matter what else came from the interventions that your extended family did do, even if it didn't seem to have much of an impact on the identified patient's decisions. If nothing else, it gives people some sense of peace of mind that I understand a little bit more about addiction. I understand a little bit more about how one can intervene in that. I understand that I didn't cause it and I can't cure it. Mm -hmm. We have limitations. We have other concerns. We have our own lives. Here we've got a person who really doesn't want to hear any of this right? and yeah. is barely tolerating a phone call or a visit because this person knows that there's outreach occurring, that people are concerned, that there are questions about that patient having resumed use and didn't want to hear it. Yeah. And I think one of the best things that we heard on family coaching, you know, there was a day where you know, one family member was in the middle of moving. I was at, you know, an art right. fair and doing this pottery. Yeah. And my husband wanted to be golfing and, and we all felt right. like, yeah. you know, this event had just happened and we were all kind of looking at each other like, it's your turn to step up. It's your turn to step up. And it was like, okay, here's the plan. You know, we're going to call four times. We're going to leave this message. And then if, she doesn't respond, then we're leaving it at that. And we're all going to go continue on doing these things that we love or that we want to do that bring us joy or just that need to happen today. And we're not going to let this take over our lives and, and we're going to keep living and we're going to keep supporting each other. And so having that, that opportunity to, to communicate as a family, you know, not via text message and with someone who is a professional and facilitating really the group discussions was just saved so much family, family connection and that, and that, you know, feeling yeah. of support and, and being able to get off that phone and exhale and know that it's, it is, and we're all doing our best and this is what I can do. I love that term, Megan, family connection. It really hits the nail right on the head. We did see the family get closer together. 
Mm-hmm. They were all in the same conference call and they were all talking about the substance use. Mm-hmm. I suspect for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. That's That was my sense of it. And you had different generations. You had three different generations. People were asking great questions. The family members participating were very open. People were just interested in learning more about, well, what are the risks? How do you know that this person might be drinking again? Mm-hmm. And so the opportunity to, to compare notes was tremendously helpful. The connections within the family seemed dramatically improved as a result of these these family mm-hmm. coaching sessions. There was one person who was particularly helpful going to medical appointments with your loved one, attending the medical appointments and broaching the concerns about drinking, about smoking and about who she had chosen to live with. So that person was very involved on multiple occasions to try to support health and recovery in the identified patients. One got a sense that she needed to do that for herself as much as for the identified patient. Yeah, definitely. She definitely felt that sense of responsibility and um, felt the, the, you know, that was her, that was what she felt her own responsibility was and what she wanted to that was the effort that she wanted to put forward and the and the time and she had the ability to do those things and yeah so to keep to keep the family informed about those meetings was really valuable and also to to strategize around okay we heard this at this meeting what's the next step now how how can we potentially navigate that and i think the coaching calls were really helpful because then we were able to spend that time strategizing on the phone instead of only strategizing when we saw each other in person. It allowed us to see each other in person and and hang out instead of it being, okay, now we have to talk about this, you know, terrible illness and and how we can potentially take action. It seems like everyone participating got a sense of direction. What can we do? What is beyond our control? What do we say when we call her up on the phone? Mm -hmm. While I recommended different options, the family became empowered through education and through support. Whatever you guys feel comfortable with, that is the best thing to do. There also is going to be some variability within the family. That's fine. It's important that each of us is true to ourselves. If we can learn what the options are and then make informed decisions as to what's likely to help, what's likely to not help and what's likely to hurt, it seemed to make all the difference. Mm -hmm. And especially around what's, what is an, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to say this? There were people who had been, yeah or family members who were trying to keep their emotions in so that they didn't upset the person and have that result in them drinking. And once we agree right. that this person's I already drinking that. again, can we now agree that it's okay to feel your feelings? And it might actually help the person if you express your frustration and anger and, and communicate that this is so upsetting to watch you do this to yourself. Don't you realize that you're at risk right now? Don't you realize that you could die as from what you're doing? And so I think that really, you know, enabling and empowering the family to, to not walk around on eggshells, but also know that there's other, there are different, you have to do what feels right for you. If you feel like, you know, really being stern with this person isn't, 
you might lose your temper even more, then don't put yourself in that situation. It's okay to, to, to write that down and work on that and, you know, communicate it, you know, in a letter or something or communicate it this way instead. I think that was really empowering. And then, and then also having someone to call when there was a time of crisis to help, you know, not only talk to the family members who were involved, but also to talk to the patient as well um, and saying, you know, your family is concerned about you and here are some of the things we've talked about. Can, you know, can we include you in this family coaching? There was one interesting day. You were driving this process. Mm-hmm. I got a call from you saying the person left the facility. They're going out on their own. What do we do? Four, five, six hours that afternoon into the evening, people felt a need to intervene. At least a couple people went racing out to intervene and try to encourage that person to use better judgment. So there was a period of several hours. We were keeping in close contact with emails, with text messages, and with phone calls throughout that afternoon. When people arrived at the home, there was an opportunity to have a family meeting and and the loved one participated in the direct discussion. We talked about concerns. The family needed to strongly voice about the risk. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a spokesman for the family. I was communicating the family's concerns and what I knew the risk levels to be. Being a person working in this field, We had an interesting discussion for a good 10 minutes. By the end of it, we had an agreement and we had some buy-in as a result of that family discussion on the phone. That person was sincerely shared some level of concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think without that, I don't think anyone in the family would have slept that night. But we did sleep that night and we left there without, you know, without the outcome that we wanted. We wanted the the patient to agree to going to, you know, an inpatient treatment facility. And before we, before that would happen, we wanted them to be staying with a relative until they were accepted to an inpatient program. And there's so many different variables to coordinate and, and it just wasn't, we were hitting a, we were hitting a wall. And so having you on the phone to say, okay, how can we really reduce the harm that is you know, very yes. real. How can we, how can we get to a place where, you know, you can sleep at night on, you know, one side exactly. the relatives can sleep at night and on the other side, the patient feels that, you know, their needs are being heard and, and kind of facilitate that in, in a way that's not just a blind negotiation, but in a way that's really reducing the most harm, the most yeah, potential and, harm. Exactly. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up, Megan. The whole concept of harm reduction, which basically is interfacing with a, a person with addiction who is not there at the point of either wanting to stop or enter treatment. And basically it answers the question of, well, how do you have a relationship? How do you communicate? How do you interface with that person in spite of their not being on the same page as we are? And harm reduction gives you an approach by which you try to negotiate, yet you also try to communicate, yep, you're right. It's your decision and it needs to be your decision. 
it doesn't work if somebody forces it onto you, except in certain extreme situations, but this was not one of those. Mm -hmm. So it really has to come from within. We love you, we support you, and we're still going to love you even if you choose to keep yourself in a high-risk situation. I was just going to say, that's the message that, you know, we would practice saying it, we would rehearse it, we'd work on it, and then it's emotional in the moment, and and it's hard to communicate. And so having you there to reinforce that message to the patient, making sure that they hear it. And even, you know, even if it doesn't stick, it was said and it's out there now and it's not stuffed down and just a feeling it was said, it was fact. It's closer to being accepted potentially. And that's yeah, exactly extremely helpful. Yeah. If we only had the right words or the words that we felt right with, if we can find those, it can make a, a huge difference. That's what we did. There's a saying, there's like the intervention you prepped for, the intervention you had, and the intervention you wish you had. And it's like, you know, you prep for one thing, what ultimately happened was one, another thing, but then you start thinking about it and wishing you did something different. But I think by involving you, we were able to kind of combine all three and make sure that the things that we prepped for were actually talked about and maybe some other things that we didn't think about, but because you have the experience, you knew where that was going, kind of prevented the wish you had and we were able to kind of really get yeah. the best the best that we could out yeah, there. Exactly. If nothing else, the goal of family addiction coaching is to prevent those what ifs, to minimize any kind of regrets, to help a family sleep a little better at night, have more peace of mind that they did everything that could be done, confirmed by a knowledgeable professional who said, yep, you've done everything that you can do. There were so many cool points in time during this, the work that we did together. You guys were really quick. You were quick to learn, to understand. That was, re that was really impressive. The family coaching took place over probably a couple of months mm -hmm. and not necessarily every week, but then there'd be a day or two where we'd be actively communicating with each other. There was one day when your husband went out to basically try to encourage the patient to accept treatment patient wanted nothing to do with that. So they came home. I remember you and your husband and I, one of the, one of the occasions we were having a coaching session, your husband saying, well, I'm going to go back up later on. I said, why would you do that? You just went up there with your brother. You tried to have a conversation. Basically, the door was slammed in your face. The patient is not buying what you're selling. Isn't there a better way that you could spend <laughs> the rest of this day? And I remember him saying, well, I did have plans on going golfing. Mm -hmm. I said, I think you should go golfing. <laughs> I mean, and he said, you do? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, you should go golfing and you should enjoy it because you've done what you do. I see no benefit in you going back. I think you should go golfing and you should do it guilt-free and you should have a good time. And it was so cool to hear your husband say, really? That mm. is so good to hear. I didn't think that that was... I didn't think that that was right for me to do at all. Megan, you said, yeah, I agree. You should do it. Go golfing. Yeah. And I'm going to do my pottery. I think you're mm -hmm. going to do pottery. The, I mean, the relief that you expressed, I could hear in your tones of voice. You know, you might have figured it out on your own over time, or maybe you would have golfed and pottered anyhow. <laughs> 
but you really benefited from the validation and how it was much more valuable to take care of yourselves than to keep going and hitting your head against the door. Mm -hmm. But it was so cool to hear that that sense of relief. And I was a little surprised. I mean, the situation was still very high risk. But to hear you guys say, oh, that's wonderful. We can do this and we can enjoy ourselves. It was really remarkable. Yeah. Very. It, it was it was yeah. striking. We can I'll be never sane. forget that. Exactly. Yeah. And you can I won't forget that day also. That was a it's one of the days I think both of us reflect on and say, Okay, right, what what's best for me? What's what can I actually change or what if I if there's something I can yeah. do, what's the likelihood of it really reducing harm or reducing exactly. potential harm and in that case, yeah, zero. So why would I why would I, you know, yeah put myself through any more kind of emotional duress if I can actually go do something that will bring me, you know, extreme joy and, and allow me to then approach the next day with a clear head and enthusiasm yeah. or hope. Um, so and, and health yeah. and recovery. Yeah. yeah. And I also remembered at one point to both of you, I said, being a newly married couple, your primary commitment is now to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's not to anybody else. You need to honor that. You need to go with that. Use that as the framework, as the measure of any of these decisions, where I spend my time, how much energy do I put into trying to save another person's life who doesn't want the life to be saved. And I remember you guys responded really well to that and to give yourselves permission to treat your marriage as number one, priority number one, the obligation, the commitment to yourselves as individuals and to your marriage. It seemed like that really resonated with you. Yeah, that was so refreshing to hear because it was, it was, you know, we knew we were on a team and we were working with each other, but it's like, wait, we actually have to work on each other and we need to make sure that we're giving each other in our marriage the, the energy and attention that it needs to be, to be what we want it to be and to be, you know, to start having the family that we want to have and not just be working on, um, not just be spending all of our time on family that we can't control. And so it was, it was very empowering and also a really good reminder. I think that, that right. Actually, you know, both of our, our parents were divorced. And so this is something that we want to focus on is our own health and, and wellness. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't just, happen you have to put work into it and so yeah it was it was funny because we were like isn't this family addiction counseling and then it's marriage counseling and but it was a great it was a great reminder and we still we kind of joke and say what's best for we what's best for both of us and that's great to this day that's that's awesome look back on that yeah yeah you can change the family legacy and well you are changing the family legacy Mm -hmm. And you guys are in a wonderful, healthy recovery. You're changing the the legacy of the family. And that's wonderful. Another point was when your husband's brother joined us for a coaching session. Mm-hmm. And it, and I was, um, I was blown away by the end of that session to hear his uh, maturity, to hear him describe incidents of the past where alcohol use was hugely problematic and had a huge impact on him. Your husband shared as well. 
I was so impressed by both your husband and his brother that it was such a comfortable discussion. He was aware of addiction. Both young men had had many discussions with the identified patient over years and had already done so much loving, compassionate outreach, trying to help that person gain health and recovery. It was just so impressive. I remember after that coaching session thinking to myself, wow, he's really got it all together. <laughs> he w had no illusions, didn't hear any kind of denial. He's been somehow dealing with this for several years anyhow. He was embarking on his adulthood, having just graduated college. He has his life to live now. That was his focus. It was just real impressive. Yeah, and I think we wouldn't have had that discussion in such a healthy, honest way if we hadn't had, you know, you there kind of facilitating and asking some of those questions, because it does go back to the, ooh, I know this is a question that's going to bring up feelings, and it'd be nice just to leave them. I don't want to, I don't want to be the reason someone's bringing up painful memories or something. So it was kind of a, a forcing mechanism to actually talk with each other about childhood experiences yeah. and, and the role that they might play um, as we're all adults now and, and just, yeah, getting a lot of it out on the table and, and out of the, the shame closet and, and allowing us to yeah. have, you know, airing awareness. Yeah. Airing, uh, awareness and, and as a new generation of family members, how are we, what can we do and how do we want to talk about it openly with each other? Um, it feels really healthy and, um, and feels good to be supported by, by, yeah, both of them. Effective coaching involves facilitating these conversations, asking questions that hit a certain point or hit a mark, providing education pointing out what someone has brought into the conversation and how valuable that is. That's what an effective coach will do. Having that facilitation by an outside professional, it helps you have that discussion. You can try it on your own. Chances are it's going to be a more productive discussion. And having it facilitated allows you to cover ground that used to be forbidden. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to do it as an individual with a professional, but if you do it as a family, not only do you benefit from airing it out, but you also hear other people air it out. We see families take that with them for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. They take the gains from that as a family beyond that session. So when the session is concluded, you get this feeling of family connection. I love that term that you mm -hmm. introduced, family connection. There's a higher comfort level. You feel like you're on the same team loving, compassionate, and supportive. What a difference that can make. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember that night we, after we had the phone call, the coaching session with my husband and, and his sibling, we had Chinese food and the conversation yeah. kept going, we kept talking. And so it's, it's nice to know that, okay, we can, you know, that 
that one coaching session or you know, it was a couple of coaching sessions, but that one in particular really opened up the gates for us to continue talking and, and continue having nights where we have Chinese food and, and hang out and know that this is a safe place to, to talk and to share feelings and share memories without any shame or judgment and follow-up questions are allowed because, because we're supportive and loving of each other. We're not asking um, to, to drudge up more um, feelings or to, to make you uncomfortable. It was really a healthy just openness and felt really healthy and supportive. It's like a breaking of the ice to some degree. Mm-hmm. Where I saw it be so useful for the two brothers to hear each other, to witness each other's experience in a way that maybe they had never done before. Absolutely. And And to hear that. Into the shame closet. It's out. (laughs) I was imagining each brother in awe, just so impressed by the health and the recovery. It helps us to be that way as well when we, and so it was a really cool moment. You never lose that. You build on that. It's shared experience. We were open and honest discussing our experiences and our feelings and our thoughts was important to us, what our next steps were going to be. You never lose that. No, you don't lose that. And and you also... It it makes some of the other, you know, memories that you have with each other so much more fun because you say, okay, yeah. even though we had this really hard, really heartfelt, deep, you know, um, really tough conversation, a minute later, they went back to stealing chicken off of each other's plates and <laughs> being yeah. just brothers again. And so the ability to, which to is know important too. By, yeah, by having these conversations, you're not going to give up the fun uh, and, and the good things. It just, it only gets better. The brother was not going to be up, maybe he was only up for a couple of days or so. Wow, what a nice way to spend some time together and have it be meaningful like that and maybe it's only a couple of days but wow it's life-changing mm-hmm. absolutely life-changing yeah you were so open and receptive quick to learn you guys thrived in it yeah i and could I see that don't happening think we were we were expecting that outcome necessarily we went into it hoping that we would just get some guidance on you know what we even do we don't know what to do and and I think we got so much more out of it in terms of you know the family dynamics and and being able to strengthen our family ties but then also being able to to address some of the more tactical items but really some of the the deeper you know what really is important which is which is the whole family and growth right yes yeah, being yeah. able to and also witness each other's growth. Everyone, you know, was yeah. in this together and, you know, each individual's working on their own things and going through their own growth, but seeing kind of the whole family the whole family really work together and grow as as a unit is is inspiring. It's exciting. It's exciting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Earlier on, you and I were talking individually. That's how the family coaching goes. It's not necessarily the same format or the same structure each time. You can call spur of the moment. I got a decision to make. Do you have time to help me do this? 
I'll help you do it. I'll make time. I'll do it as soon as possible. And that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's what families need. When there's a patient who leaves treatment prematurely, you don't have time to wait to respond to that. One point, I remember you um, expressing some regret that you hadn't taken some sort of action sooner. As soon as I heard that, I interrupted you and I said, you did the best that you could do at the time with what you were aware of, what you had on your plate. I don't see any reason to beat up on yourself thinking that you should have done more. You did exactly what you were meant to do at that moment in time. I encourage you to find a way to feel good about that, to appreciate that. I do remember that. And I remember thinking, damn, that puts things in perspective. (laughs) I need to put things in perspective more. Um, And yeah, no, I do. I do remember thinking there's so many times when... When you think, oh, I wish I should have done this or I should have told this person to say this, you know, more directly or I should yeah. have, you know, I shouldn't have let that doctor leave the room without saying something or I should have pushed harder for this at this time. And yeah, you just really help to put things in perspective and say, actually, you know, given what the information you had at that time, what you did was was remarkable and was the best thing that you could have done at that time or you know what else could you have done you know you did the best you could so this actually this person would have done that anyway the disease would have compelled them to do that anyway you didn't cause them to do that Um, right you know the oh we should have picked up on this this sooner well you know how could you how could you have picked up on that sooner this was a completely you know irrational and irresponsible decision that was made as a result of the disease can't right. predict that. Um, right. Yeah. Have, knowing that we didn't have to wait for the next pre-scheduled call or, you know, the set cadence, but knowing that when something did happen, we had, we had a resource that could jump in and help and, and the time, you know, time constraints weren't based on business hours because these things don't limit themselves. Crises don't happen, don't limit themselves only to occurring in business hours. So having right that support was really just a great, gave us great peace of mind. And sometimes it's an email or a text message that gets sent one way or the other. That's enough. Right. And 15 minutes is enough. You don't need a whole hour or sometimes you need an yeah, hour and exactly. a half. Yeah, exactly. The flexibility and was really key. It's always done to meet a need. We don't create a need. We respond when people have the need. We have goals. We start each session out by identifying, well, what are the goals for this coaching session? What do we want to get out of this? At the end of this hour, what can we take away that will leave us feeling like this is time well spent? So we always are focused. And sometimes we came to the calls with different goals as a family and, and having you there to kind of talk through what's realistic, what, what do we think the priority is here? Some where where can we combine some of those goals was really helpful because, or there were other times where I'm like, I don't even know what the goal is, but we got a problem. And that was really helpful to be able to talk about, okay, well, let's break this down into, uh, you know, this less complicated, hairy beast of a problem and just talk through what's, What's the problem that we can talk about today? What would you say to families, Megan, who are wondering if family addiction coaching might be useful for them? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think if, um, if other families are, are wondering, you know, am I doing this right? What I am doing is helpful. I'm worried about a relative, but you know, I'm not sure if I should step in and I'm not sure if I can actually do anything. You know, those kinds of questions, if those are milling about in your head, I think it's useful to, to reach out for coaching services and, and, you know, I did, I do like that the coaching services always do spend time on, you know, understanding what, what's even happening. So the time spent, you know, going through some discovery and just un, like taking all of these puzzle pieces out and starting to lay them out can be really, that can be really valuable to figure out how big of a problem is this or how much, how much risk is there right now to this person seriously harming themselves? Um, or if, if you've tried other things and they're just not working and you feel like you're banging your head against the wall, trying again and again and nothing's sticking, I would say try and think about, you know, how can we, everybody, every person is different. Every person who has an addiction is different. And so working with someone who might have other strategies for approaching your particular loved one in the way that they might respond best. You know, there's so many things that you can read online, but once you get on the phone with a professional to really talk about it, you might come to realize that that there are some different strategies that you haven't tried but feel really reasonable and responsible and, and might make a difference. Um, I would say, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it's worth the time, it's worth the painful discussions. Um, if not only to help the if not only to help your loved ones, to also help yourself. Sometimes people schedule a coaching session and it's a one session and they got the feedback. Like you said, is there anything more that I can do? Am I doing the right thing for my loved one and for myself? One coaching session and they're good and and they are good. They got what they needed. They know that they can always come back. Sometimes they do come back as you did about a year and a half later. Yeah. And I didn't feel sure to continue every week it was like okay that the situation is kind of where it is and there are other factors at play and you were there when we were ready to and needed it you were referred to me by a a family member who had had a positive experience so that was useful for you as one of the most difficult things about getting help is the contradictory information and advice and guidance that you can get from professionals. The idea, well, how do I know who to trust? You were fortunate. Uh, You had a loved one who had used my services and so could vouch for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have thoughts for other people? What could they perhaps do to figure out who they can trust and what kind of information is accurate and reliable? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's yeah, keeping an open mind and figuring out, you know, what what are the other things that, you know, there's there are all sorts of things popping up online and telling you to do it this way or don't do it that way. You as a as a loved one should refer to this, you know, get the person on the phone, get them into talking to this, you know, intake specialist, blah blah blah. There's so much like pressure on what you should do to help that person get into these other programs, but then thinking about, okay, well, what actually who's going to help me to like prioritize things and think through these different systems, the healthcare system, the insurance system, you know, the societal 
pressures, the family system. So I'd, I'd say think about, you know, who's going to have your interests. And in this case, you know, that's one place where I felt like, okay, who's going to have our best interests? That would be the family coach, you know, not the, not the doctors. The doctors want to dismiss the patient to be into the next, to get passed to the next group that's supposed to take care of them. Um, so kind of trusting that the, the, until there's some, you know, a lot of reform in these other systems, the person to trust is the person that's going to be there for the family, not just the patient. Um, mm. And the person to, to think about, or the, the perspectives, thinking about different perspectives, you know, keeping an open mind in terms of the different types of treatment, but also putting in perspective some of the other um, programs or or. Who else, what what are these other people's agendas? The people who are telling you do this, don't do that. Like, what are their agendas, and what are they? Why might they be pushing that? Yeah, and definitely one... searching, searching online to see if you know journalists or reporters have written anything about those different treatment facilities, or if um, there's been any stories that have been uh, made available about how different hospitals might handle handle addiction you know knowledge is power understanding how this this industry works and what the options are and what the different terminology was really empowered us to have more educated and informed discussions with some of the healthcare professionals and with the patient as well the families that i've seen the families that i've worked with are overwhelmingly healthy loving compassionate, supportive, and it's really easy to judge other people, it seems, and to tell them they're doing something wrong when we haven't walked in their shoes and we might not even have had a discussion with them. Would you care to comment on on that at all? Sure, yeah. I think that the, yeah, the concepts of enabling and codependence were very helpful to me if, as I applied them to my own actions and to use them as a tool yes. to decide what, what I wanted to do next. You know, am I going to allow the, the person who's suffering from alcohol use disorder to have their car keys? You know, am, this is a tough decision. What, how do I evaluate this and that having those tools to think about framing it in terms of, detaching or versus enabling versus being codependent on someone. I think those are really helpful. And it's well said, as you put it in terms of using those to apply to the individual, but um, it does, it can feel like a, it can feel shameful when these treatment facilities say, you know, we'll take the patient and we'll fix them here. But really what caused them to do this was what you were doing. It's like, no, <laughs> there's so much yeah. more to addiction and I can't even begin to explain it. But I know that there's so much more to the disease. And so I think putting it in the context of it is a disease and having empathy towards that and also working on seeing the sides of the, the person and being able to separate them from the disease and saying, okay, even though, you know, I'm not going to be able to have dinner with this person because it's too hard for me to watch them drink or watch them have such a strong desire to drink and shake so because they're needing to drink, I am willing to go over for breakfast and do a crossword puzzle. 
and connect with them in that way to let them know that I still care about them. But, you know, that's kind of my boundary. And so having the tools to make that decision, but also not feel that I need to necessarily cut the person out of my life completely or um, some of the, yeah, like put them in treatment and they'll deal with them, I think has been just really more positive and focus more on, you know, how can I show this person that they have unique skills and a unique position and a unique place in, in the family's heart. Um, but also, you know, making sure that they know that they have the ability to grow and to be a loving part of this family, but they not, not in the way that, um, or, or that they need help and that we believe in them, but they need help. And so that's been, I think, more helpful than the messages of get them into this or else, um, or the only solution is X. One pathway to recovery. Right. There, there are many pathways and, and different pathways dependent on their circumstances. We also hear a lot about letting them hit rock bottom. In other words, distancing from a person who is using substances, pulling away any kind of support. If you give them money, if you give them love, if you give them attention, if you give them anything, then you're just making them worse. You were actively working with the family to mobilize a plan and to go out and do anything that you could to assist them in gaining health and recovery. Yeah, it's it's not, uh, yeah to contrast the rock bottom. It's the it's not the rock bottom method. It's the there's always hope method. And yeah, you know the the balance of that is hard. You know they watching someone um, watching someone do take actions that are leading them to increased harm or leading them to more pain and suffering is really hard. Communicating that to them is something that sometimes the rock bottom approach, I don't think takes into effect, you know, communicating with them and saying, it's so hard to watch you do this. Don't you see what you're doing? Um, And trying to, trying to continue and keep that communication open so that, you can continue to reinforce that there is hope and that they can get better. It's a, it's a disease there, you know, there isn't a cure, but there is treatment. And so what, you know, there, there is hope and they can take an action, but they have to take the action. And so just by completely walking away and eliminating ourselves from the situation, we didn't feel like they would be encouraged to, get treatment or to get help, we felt like they would, they wouldn't be in a better position by us walking away. Well, Megan, I do want to thank you so much for sharing your valuable life experience with us. It's really been fascinating. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Family Addiction Coaching. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. We'll continue to interview interesting and strong families as long as there is a need for this information in the community. Make sure to visit our website, www.opioidcoaching.com. If you think you might want professional coaching for yourself or your family, Patrick Doyle is available. Have a peaceful day.